Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. In 1999, Bill Carr joined Amazon. 15 hugely successful years later, he left as vice president of Prime Video, Amazon Studios and Amazon Music, having been an integral member of the team that led Amazon's meteoric digital rise. He is co-author of the newly published Working Backwards, Insights, Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon, a first-person account of how Amazon created and implemented the principles and processes that were used to create businesses such as Kindle, Prime, Prime Video, and Amazon Web Services. So what's his story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Bill Carr, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to uh, to have you on as our guest. Uh, appreciate your time. Really looking forward to diving into uh, what has been a, a fascinating story and background. But um, as always, I like to start with the start, if you like. So tell me, where did you grow up and, and what was childhood like for you? I grew up uh, in suburban Philadelphia and I lived there all the way through till I left for college. I went uh, to a, a small liberal arts college in in uh, a rural part of Maine, the state of Maine, so in the very farthest northeast corner of the United States, Colby College. And um, childhood was good. I, I had um, a great experience in school. I went to a, uh, a small private school. It's actually a, a Quaker school. So one of the oldest schools in the United States, founded in 1697. For, for those that, that don't know, of course, the folks that settled the Pennsylvania area were the Quakers, and they were big into education. So most several of the uh, private or independent schools in the Philadelphia area are, are Quaker schools, friend schools. And so um, I had a terrific experience there. And um, I think it was, you know, uh, partly that that experience, that school that, that uh, really exposed me to and got me interested in having a what I would describe as a liberal arts education, one where I embraced a variety of different subject matters. And that transferred through all the way to college where I ended up you know, studying and majoring in two topics that were rather unrelated, uh, economics and uh, English literature. In fact, I would argue that, that this sort of took a while, but this, um, this approach of, of really uh, taking a, a broad-based approach to my education and, and understanding everything from science to math to economics to literature, history, art, has proven to be very valuable uh, in my career as the as we you know look in the 21st century where understanding uh, Steve Jobs talked about this a lot. Uh, he talked about the the meaning of liberal arts and technology. And um, from an early age, I can recall, I can recall even when I was in um, in high school in the early 1980s, I already had it fixed in my mind that. I was excited about the idea of someday moving out to California and working in the Silicon Valley and being part of a, of a technology company. I never really made it to Silicon Valley, so I ended up, you know, as we know, further north in Seattle, sort of the second largest tech hub in the United States, uh, if not the world. But uh, yeah, I had that in my mind uh, early on, but it was a very meandering, <laughs> meandering journey 
uh, for me to get there. It took a long time from sort of the early 80s to uh, 1999 when I finally landed at uh, Amazon.com. Where did that uh, that initial kind of uh, I suppose vision or or or, in, or even interest in technology spark from? Because I was I was fascinated as I was doing my research that um, as to your your educational background, not least as I understood it, um, if my sources prove correct, that you came from a a family of scientists. I think, or at least from a chemical engineering perspective, is that right? That your your father and your grandfathers were chemical engineers. Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 some good research there. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know about in in the EU, but in the United States, it's it was not uncommon when I was a boy to have you know families who have doctors and and uh, lawyers or accountants, but to have a family to to grow up in a family of chemical engineers was uh, unusual uh, to be sure. Yeah. So, uh, not only was my father a chemical engineer, but both of my grandfathers were chemical engineers. One was a PhD. And my mother had an undergraduate degree in biology, and I had uh, you know multiple grandmothers who had who had graduated from college, which was you know quite unusual by the way in, in those days. And they both had studied science as well. So I somewhat bucked the trend. My mother was encouraging uh, a career in science uh, early on for me, and in fact, I spent a summer in high school working in a microbiology lab at uh, the Fox Chase uh, Institute for Cancer Research. It was one of the, I believe at that time, one of the 10 cancer research centers in the United States. So a, a pretty formidable place and a place that honestly, I realized in retrospect that for some you know, high school student to have showed up in one of these labs uh, was a pretty remarkable thing. But my mother had been uh, volunteering at that center. But um, uh, sadly, or <laughs> I learned through that process of working in a microbiology lab, and my lack of deep interest in science uh, coursework in high school, that um, a career in science was not to be for me. However, my father, being, being an engineer, we owned one of the first uh, IBM PCs uh, uh, in a household. You know, the, 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 very first, the very first generation of IBM PCs that mostly showed up in businesses, we had one at home. And I had friends. I had friends that um, a couple of my childhood friends who, yeah, they had you know, app, they had an Apple One or an Apple Two, and we got into you know programming. I remember even I can't recall if it was jun- my uh, junior high or my high school where I, I had I definitely had computer science class at school. Which think about that back into the early 1980s. That's that's fairly unusual. So I learned basic to program in basic. And I guess I've always been a relatively self-aware person. I realized that, you know, I, I sort of, I got the, I got the gist of it, but I was not addicted to it. I was not one of these people that then would spend hours and hours, you know, coding, but I found it interesting. And I think I could see that this was the future. I could see that computing, uh, that this was going, this was going to change the world. And so I think that was what was interesting to me about it. And that I was always a uh, sort of commercially minded, business minded. And so to me, I saw that this was, I, I liked the idea of working on new technologies that would, you know, be part of the future and the commercial possibilities of that, that, that some, you know, if I had to dissect it, you know, who knows what was going on in my, my brain and at age uh, 14 and 15, but somewhere in there, that was, that, that must've been it. Well, we're a we're a, a very similar age, and I was struck by a conversation that I had this morning with my nephew, who's ten today, 
and uh, for his birthday he has a hoverboard and we got onto the subject of Back to the Future, which he's yet to see. It's it's totally alien to him. But even from an entertainment perspective, it struck me that the 80, even the films we were watching, that the whole thing seemed to be centered around this kind of inc incredible creativity around just what technology could do to really change and shape our futures. And it just seemed a world of possibility, as I recall. Right. Yes. That's what was always interesting to me. But it took me it took me a lot longer to get there. <laughs> in retrospect than it should have. Anyway, I could have taken a more direct line. So, so if you go back to your childhood, who were the heroes? Who were the posters on the wall? Who were the uh, the, the people that you looked up to? Who were your inspiration? Well, I, I loved sports, still love sports. And when I was 12 years old or thereabouts, our street, they repaved our street. And then instead of being rough, bumpy pavement, it was silky smooth. And this was the time when skateboarding came into existence. At this time, it was a, a fringe sport, largely based in California, because this would have been uh, late 70s. But I loved it. I got it. I was addicted to that early on. And some kids on, the, there was a, a young, older boy up the street, he was into it. And so we just, it seemed like then every day after school on the weekends, I would just be riding skateboards up and down the street, trying different tricks, trying different things. So so early on, I was reading, you know, Skateboarder magazine, and and some of my early heroes were these. Really, they were they were they were punks. Really, these these sort of like punk rock stars. These these skateboarders, Tony Alva, uh, Stacy Powell, uh, someone Peralta. I can't hardly can hardly recall their names, but I thought that were super cool. Um, and I, you know, I wanted nothing more than to live in California and be a skateboarder. So I was really, I, I played sports in, in school. I was uh, soccer, sorry, football for, for, for those of you in the EU. I was, a, I was a goalkeeper and a pretty good tennis player. But I was really actually an action sport athlete who was deprived of living, parents that were into, say, skiing or surfing and living in the right place to do it. Uh, you know, suburban Philadelphia was not a hub for, if you wanted to ski or surf or uh, skateboard, like this was not really the best place to be. So it took me a while to sort of, to get to that, but, but, um, you know, that and, you know, pro professional baseball players, it was a fan of that professional soccer wasn't really a thing in the United States in those days. It was, uh, you know, there was football made in Germany was a show that appeared in the United States on one channel for an hour or two, one Saturday, I could watch that from time to time. And so, I learned about people like Karl Heinz Rummenigge from watching that show, but you know, these, this is an obscure sport in the United States. Uh, I think, you know, if I could point to any like business leader that I thought was cool, of course it was Steve Jobs. Like, you know, he was cool. He invented the Mac, uh, the Apple, you know, at that point there was no Mac, the Apple II, Apple One. Yeah, that's what comes to mind. So, so at what point did business start to feature? Because I think I'm right in saying that post-college you advanced to an, an MBA. Um, but to your point, you, you know, parents from a science background, chemical engineering, microbiology. Um, at what point you, you alluded to that kind of an interest in business through high school? At what point did you think actually an MBA is the route? That's the path. That's the future for me. Weirdly enough, I distinctly remember, you know, well before early in my high school career thinking, oh, yeah, what I should really do. <laughs> I didn't quite live up to this. What I should do is get a, an undergraduate degree in computer science. At that time, it was electron. It would have been called electronic engineering, and then go get an MBA so that I could have a successful business career in tech. Weird that I thought that that's what I should do 
I didn't quite do that, but you know, that is of course a fantastic recipe for success <laughs> then and today. That would be, you know, if I had to give someone some advice, say, well, if you're really interested in a career in technology, what should you go do? Like I would say to go do those, you know, that would be two of my suggestions for sure. I came to appreciate that, you know, I was not, I was not really a scientist. I was not. And, you know, I, I remember taking a computer science class my freshman year in college and realizing that I was the only person in this class who was not a math major and that I was going to get smoked if I, um, compared to them in terms of my, you know, level of aptitude and interest in actually programming. So a career as a uh, computer scientist was, was not to be. And so, yes, I, I ended up focusing more on, uh, you know, again, this liberal arts education, economics and English. And then, and then my early career was in sales and marketing. Sales didn't particularly play to my strength, but but marketing was sort of more up my alley. So you joined uh, Procter & Gamble, is that right? Um, Post-MBA? After business school, yes. I went to go work for Procter & Gamble. What a fabulous organization. What do you think that early experience with Procter & Gamble equipped you with? Uh, a lot. I was... Um, so the thing that appealed to me about that company was that, you know, it was a company that had high standards of management and they held themselves to a high standard. Uh, they, it was somewhat prestigious to actually, you know, theoretically to land a job and work there. And it was considered a, certainly in the, you know, most of the 1970s and eighties and part of the nineties considered a great factory for leaders and general managers. And so I thought that that would be, you know, a great place to be. And in many ways it was, I learned, you know, I learned a lot about what good management, good planning, a, a lot of the, you know, they, they teach you a lot in business school, but the, the reality is you learn on the job. You, you really learn how to, to, to be a, an effective business person, business leader on the job. And the sort of the combination of the on the job work and the the formal training and structure they would they would put in place. I, I learned a lot from that and that would that served me well. I didn't stay very long though, because what I also came to learn about myself very quickly was that I don't gravitate towards large organizations. And maybe that's just part of the fact that I always went to I, every one of the institutions I was a part of prior to that, my you know, elementary and secondary school, my college, my my business school, these were all had small class sizes, small, small enrollments. So maybe it's a function of that. I don't know. But, but um, at some level, large institutions are appealing. But inside, I don't, it doesn't really work for me. And it didn't work for me mostly just because I felt like, wow, the, the progression to, to move up in this organization is measured in like decades. Like it seems like uh, you haven't been really, you haven't learned any, you know, once you've been there 10 years, then you you finally, <laughs> like you've, you've passed some threshold. But um, yeah, I worked alongside people that, you know, like 15, 20, 20 years. And I just realized that my progression upward was going to be really slow. I came to realize later, of course, that part of that was that your progression up, if you don't work in a growth company, then you're basically just waiting. You have to either crawl over people or wait for them to die and retire, right? So that's how you move up. Uh, and P&G, you know, in those days was not really a growth. It was not a growth company. And the second thing I realized is that feeling like I could make any meaningful contribution to the company, it felt like this was impossible. But I had the great benefit of actually landing on this one particular team in the company. It wasn't in marketing. I was actually in sales. And I was on this account team for the retailer Kmart, 
which many of your listeners may not know of or remember. But back in the night, you know, in the 80s and 90s, they were the they were actually had a very brief period of time where they were the largest retailer in the world after Sears. And then by this point that I was there, they were the second largest after after Walmart. But they were in bad shape and they had been uh, P&G had extended an olive branch to them to say, look, we'll try to help you, you know, manage your business more effectively, uh, cut costs, grow. And we'll we'll give you these resources that will bring a team of people to, you know, an office building across the street from your headquarters. And they'll help you with analyzing your point of sale data, helping you figure out how to have more effective assortment decisions, uh, improve your supply chain operations. And I was lucky enough to sort of land on this team. And uh, because of this unusual arrangement, I ended up spending a lot of time doing work on behalf of the vice president of the um, consumables business for Kmart. Basically, all the things you know that um, consumables being you know food, laundry detergent, paper towels, all these categories that P and G can participated in. And I would actually helping this person with their analyze their point of sale data, make decisions about what items to carry, how to lay out the shelf, and this became my way of actually getting a, a deep education in how retail is supposed to work, how it works and how it's supposed to work at the same time, because we were it was sort of theory meeting practice. And in this condensed period of time, I learned a lot, which as you know, now that you know the rest of the story, you would realize that much you know, later when I arrived at Amazon, this proved to be incredibly valuable experience that few at the company had. So if we, we jump forward to, to 99 and, and if we reflect on the Amazon we know today, it would be something of an understatement for me to suggest it was a household name. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it is a dominant force in, in every sense. But if I go back to 1999, I think I looked at the numbers. Amazon had net sales of $1.64 billion, which whilst sizable, and that was up 169% on the prior year, they'd had a pro forma net loss of 390 million, in, uh, <laughs> which was a, a $1.19 a share, which yeah. in the context of where we look today, people would find this, I, I imagine, difficult to believe. But the thing that, that struck me was that, as I recall, whilst growing rapidly and certainly investing aggressively, the thing that struck me was, was what was the appeal of Amazon for you at that time, if only because they were clearly growing, I guess would be part of the appeal, but not to make any assumption. Why Amazon when you go back to 1999? Well, I sort of fell into it, honestly. It wasn't, I didn't seek it out. Um, through a series of events, after I left Procter & Gamble, I left to go work for a tech startup company, finally starting to theoretically realize, you know, what I had set out, what I had in my mind back in 10th grade. But to, to gloss over that quickly, I mean, frankly, I went to an early stage tech startup that was not finding product market fit. It was dysfunctional in many ways, which is both of these things would describe, you know, nine out of 10 tech startups, by the way. And I learned very hard lessons about how hard it is to sort of turn something around that's not working very well in a tech startup and try to make it work. And and eventually I should have given up. Frank, you know, what I learned from that, frankly, is I should have given up much earlier, but my <laughs> I, I I believed that I could you know help it, and so I stuck around for two years. But at the end, I realized I was I was starting to look for a job, and I was actually out in Seattle visiting a friend because of this this other company I worked for was actually in Boston. But I was visiting a friend in Seattle from college, and he had recently joined Amazon. He had been working at Microsoft for four or five years, and you know we were catching up, and I was relating you know my situation, and I, I really need to go find something else. 
And he was saying, you know, maybe you really ought to look at Amazon. And up until he said that, it never really occurred to me that that would be a company that I should work at. But then, you know, he started to point out to me that this was a tech company combined with retail. And you just spent two years at a tech startup. And before that, you had this retail experience. You actually, you know, probably would be a pretty good fit for this company. And of course, I'd used Amazon and already appreciated, wow, what a cool service. And I knew the brand and knew the story. But it wasn't until he sort of helped me put the two and two together. And then what really changed it was then when I came in and interviewed and actually saw the place and experienced the people and realized that there was this, you know, sorry for the hyperbole, but kind of this magical world that I was about to enter. Can you remember that feeling? And what was that feeling? It was incredible. So it, it was the ener- the level of energy just was palpable. The, 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 every conversation in every interview, I realized that, A, this person was really smart, really driven, really passionate, and that with the way they would talk about the company where it was going, it was like the world was your oyster. Like there was unlimited possibility of what could happen at this company and where they could go. And, you know, I had never experienced anything. I mean, you know, I, I realized in retrospect that I was incredibly lucky just to have appeared at, at those doors at that time because these things happen so infrequently in history. You know, obviously people who are early at a company like Google or, you know, Apple or they, they've all sort of seen the same thing. But I was, you know, I was lucky enough to sort of, you know, come in the, those doors. And then when I, when I, you know, came on uh, and, you know, it was, it was also just sort of like, it was, it was like the wild west. It was crazy. Like my, the, the building was bursting at the seams. I, I when I interviewed in the, the spring of 1999, it was the last time the company was all still in one building. It was in this one, you know, kind of grade C, uh, real estate office building over a, on top of a bar. By the way, where every night, um, you know, once the bar cranked up, you could hear the music, the thump, 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 and the, the cigarette smoke would like rise up. This was, you know, not a nice place. And so crowded that some of my interviews were in like a stairwell or uh, we walked to a coffee shop or in a break room with a little divider where everyone was getting their coffee on the other side. Yeah, it, it's hard to describe. And, and then And then once I started working there, that feeling of, I just remember within a matter of weeks, I kept sort of, I look over my shoulder to the right and the left and I kept wondering, okay, when is the adult supervision going to show up? It seems like we're all just, you know, running this place, but there's no one. Where's the adult telling us like what we can and cannot do? This is weird. This is weirdly empowering. And that's when I had this first realization that like, oh my God, you know, for at that time, my relatively small sphere of the company, but like, oh my God, this is like, it's up to me. Like if this works or does this part works or doesn't work, like it's up to me. And that was the big difference that was and completely and totally energizing because you didn't, while at that startup I was at before, that was true too, but it wasn't working. But here things were working and it felt like I was on a big stage. And so it's your choice now. <laughs> it's up to you. Are you going to perform well and make it on this big stage or not? And so I threw myself into it like, you know, nothing I'd, I'd done before. And, and you joined as a senior product manager with DVD and video. So this is pre 
I'm trying to get my course of events in the right order, sorry. But this is pre-streaming. This is pre, yes, this, this is in the days when we used to, we used to, Blockbuster was still around. We used to go and rent DVDs off shelves and get DVDs sent to home. That, all that. Yeah, Blockbuster, Blockbuster was the largest uh, retailer. It, just to be clear, it was like pre-DVD. 75% of uh, okay, our sales were yeah. VHS tapes at this time. DVD yeah, okay. was a brand new format. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how early it was, yes. Our number one selling title was Billy Blank's Tybo on VHS. So uh, it was early, early, early. Yeah, streaming wouldn't even become a thing until like 2009. So it was like a decade before streaming would yeah. happen. So yeah, it was it was very early days. Was Netflix around at the point at which it was then it was mailing out Netflix DVDs? Had, in the I don't know the history of Netflix that well, but in, even in 1999, I remember in one of my first meetings with the then CFO of the company, Warren Jensen, him asking me and my then manager, Jason Kyler, Jason, who is now the CEO of Warner Media, asking us, "What do we think about that Netflix?" <laughs> and I still remember <laughs> what I said. I said, "Oh." We don't need to worry about them. They're in the wrong category. They're in the rental business. The rental business is a declining business. The growth business here is ownership. And, you know, without boring with the details of how home video worked, that was the big growth business. People, studios had finally figured out to make the prices low enough for new movies on VHS and DVD. And so people were gobbling up buying DVDs and VHS tapes. So I said, no, no, don't worry about them. That's the rental category. That's going away. One of my first of many statements that were short-sighted and underestimated Netflix. It took me a long time to stop underestimating them, unfortunately. <laughs> so what was the story behind Prime Video? Well, you're fa- now we've, we're going to fast forward a decade. Uh, the story there is that, um, you know, briefly, you know, five years after I started Amazon, my role changed. Jeff asked my then manager, Steve Kessel, and I to stop running at that time the U.S. physical media business, which was, you know, books, CDs, DVDs, VHS tapes. It was Amazon's biggest business and say, we need to get started with a digital video business, a digital media business, excuse me. And I want the two of you to work on that full time. And to fast forward a bit, we ended up coming with a big plan for how we're going to enter eBooks with Kindle and the eBook business. And so, in fact, in the early days of digital media, about 80% of our resources went towards that and you know half i i asked for this and half it was decided for me but i said hey you know what rather than me also being one of the members of the leadership team on this kindle thing i'll go over here where we have very few resources i'm going to go work on making sure that digital video and digital music happen and so then a few years later 2006 or 2007 is when we launched the very first digital video service at amazon which was called amazon unbox and it was in the us only that service allowed you to buy or rent movies and TV shows and download them to your PC to watch on your PC. And that's pretty much all you know. the technology allowed us to do at that time. The only people that could do more than that were Apple because they had their own little iPod. And so you could, in that case, you could download to your Mac or PC and then sideload it to your iPod. But that's about all you could do. <laughs> and, and then from that, those humble beginnings, we saw it to figure out how, well, how do we actually, you know, that, that wasn't a big business. That was not an amazing product and it was not a big business. And we said, okay, well, how do we make this a big business, an amazing product? Because the idea that you can download and watch any movie or TV show, this is going to be a big business. So how do we get there? We realized that problem number one was 
what we called the path to the TV. So in those days, there was no way to watch. You, you could download it to your PC, but then unless you were very techy and kludged together a way to watch on your TV, you couldn't. And we knew that most people wanted to watch, you know, where do you want to watch a movie and TV show? On your TV. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. And eventually what happened is we did a partnership with a company called TiVo. They made a set-top box uh, that allowed us to actually download to that box to watch on the TV. And then shortly thereafter, around, I want to say it's 09 timing, is really when streaming to smart TVs and then devices like the Roku came into existence. And we sort of followed along that path. And then the second thing we realized that we needed in addition to being on TV sets was we needed to have content that people cared about and differentiated us from others. That that became a, that became rapidly apparent as we start to see Netflix really take off, the subscription offering take off, and realize that if we stayed in this business that we were in at that time, which was the a la carte business, you know, buying and renting TV shows, we, Apple, Google, anyone in this business would have those same movies and TV shows. So why would you bother buying it from Amazon and Apple? The prices would be the same, the content's the same. So you need to differentiate. And that's where Netflix got us leg up on everyone, frankly, by offering a differentiated experience that was subscription, all you could eat. And you know, today, of course, everyone and their brother is trying to create a subscription business. But Netflix was really one of the first ones to pursue that. And interestingly, we actually had um, for music, uh, was the other business I ran, like that was actually the first thing we were going to try to do too. We were going to try to launch what the same thing you think of today, which is an all you can eat subscription service to music, but the technology and the licensing, licensing rights made that so hard to do in a good way that it wasn't ready. So we saw the value of that, but we, we didn't go there to make a long, to try to make this long story short. We, you know, by 2010 or so, we realized that, okay, what we really need is a subscription. You know, we, we figured out how to get our content to the TV set. And by that time, you know, also starting to figure out how to get it to iPads and iPhones. How do we have distinctive content? How do we have a sub subscription service? And then in 2011 is really when we then decided, okay, the, the answer to that question is what we should do is, is actually just knit it into Prime itself. And effectively, we took a page out of Netflix's playbook because, you know, it's very hard to bootstrap a subscription service from zero for two reasons. One is you start off with zero subscribers. And two, it's actually very expensive. It's a fixed fee business to go get those movies and TV shows. So if you want to if you want to get Breaking Bad and have it on your service, you're going to pay X millions of dollars for that property or tens of millions for that property and it doesn't matter whether it's watched once or 100 million times, you're going to pay that. And so you have to have a lot of subscribers to be able to afford to pay for a lot of content. And this is a terrible chicken and egg problem. The way we, the way Netflix solved that chicken and egg problem is by just making the, the streaming subscription free for people who already had a DVD rental service. And that allowed them to slowly and incrementally over time get better because the early content they had for the first streaming was terrible. If you go back and look at like what they offered back then, it was, it was crap. And so we actually took a page out of that strategy and we launched our subscription service by making it included with prime prime shipping, which was only in the U S at that time. And that worked really well for the same reason, which was people would not have paid us money for the, the week selection of movies and TV shows we started with, but they started to watch it and started to use it more. And that utility then allowed us to be able to afford to go invest in more and more better content 
And oh, by the way, that allowed us to make the important decision to say, you know what, to really win in the space, we need to have our own movies and TV shows. We need to create our own motion picture studio because the competition of sort of battling Netflix for every deal for every movie and TV series was was brutal, particularly, fr- frankly, in the UK when we when we entered that market via our love film acquisition. That was particularly bloody. And that was that was really the turning point for me and for Jeff realizing this is what we need to go do. And so we went down that path. If you go back to that initial conversation with, was it Steve, I think you mentioned was your boss and Jeff around, you know, we need to build a digital media business. This is the route, the, the direction of travel. Did, do you remember how you felt at that time? If you, you I, I'd imagine from the timescales we talked about, you're running a very successful significant part of Amazon's business at that point, almost why give that up? Or, or could you see the direction of travel? Could you see where the world was heading? I had both feelings ran through my mind. So the, the one feeling was I was very upset. And I was upset because in the four and a half years I'd been with the company, I'd been promoted twice. And I now had, I now had actually a pretty big job in the company. I managed, I was responsible for, depending on how you want to call it, let's say half of the P&L for the company's largest business, which was the U.S. books, music, and video business. Um, I was a director. I was going well. And it seemed like I was not far off, frankly, from being promoted again. And so when Steve was asked by Jeff to go do this, I thought this was my chance to take over Steve's job because he was running uh, this business not just for the United States but globally. And this was my big chance to get you know a really big job. And so I, I, I felt like a, I was being passed over and disappointed, and B, it felt like, wow, um, now instead of having this big high-profile job managing a big business, now I'm going to go go kind of over here to the basement with, you know, there was this small little team of people, like four people who at one point I'd even managed, who ran the ebook business. But it was tiny, like no one was buying ebooks. You could only, they were too expensive. There weren't that many of them. You could only read them on a PC. But, you know, I was no dummy. Of course, I realized, of course, someday, thanks to the internet, you're going to be able to access any kind of media you want. But that day was not here yet. And, you know, there are plenty of other companies that have been trying to do this for a while. Real Networks was very early in this game and, you know, it wasn't going so well. So it was a, it was mixed emotions. I, you know, I, I did wrestle with it for a day or two. I did talk to some people for a day or two, but as most people pointed out to me, I would be a fool to not take this other job. And it was not, it was not, you know, it was not a demotion or something like that. And so I took the other job. I, yes, I, I followed Stephen and went to go work on digital media. And of course that was, that would prove to be a very good choice. But uh, I can tell you that my, the path for the next seven years was, really hard. It was really hard. In, you know. in what sense? What were some of the significant challenges that you faced along the way? Well, the just to be clear, the two businesses that I was that I launched and ran, Amazon Music and 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 Amazon Video, you know, today everyone real everyone knows that, you know, hundreds of millions of people, uh, more than 100 million I, I don't know the exact numbers any, anymore, but I know it's well over 100 million people globally use both of these things. And Amazon Studios has made multiple movies and TV shows that have won, you know, Emmys, Oscars. So, you know, people think of it, you know, (laughs) from where it is today. But for the first seven years, for the first few years, frankly, we didn't launch anything. We were spending all this time, you know, figuring out what to build, assembling the team. And, you know, it wasn't actually that attractive of a job at that time. Like people inside the company, a lot of people didn't believe it would really work. I had plenty, you know, plenty of people 
thought, ah, oh, this digital media thing, like that's not going to work. We're not going to be good at that. We're an e-commerce company. There was institutional resistance. They were getting hard getting people to get on board. And then when I did eventually launch it, the early services didn't do very well. And in fact, we were just getting crushed by Apple. And the good news was that in both of those businesses, we were the number two in the U.S. <laughs> the bad news was that Apple had about 93% market share. We had about four. And then, you know, Microsoft and a bunch of other little guys had, you know, the rest. So we were getting crushed. We had, you know, and, and the reason we were getting crushed was very simple in retrospect, which was that the digital media business is no different than the old analog media business, which is basically the business is about two things, distribution and content. And it was a stalemate with Apple on the content, but on the distribution side, they had us outflanked in 20 ways because the distribution in those days meant the app, you know, the application, the device you'd use to consume the music, which was iTunes and the iPod. And there were, you know, millions of these things and they were selling like hotcakes. And instead on our service, you could use it on, you know, not very much. Although with music, we sort of hacked our way around that problem by doing, you know, DRM free files. But nevertheless, Apple had a huge distribution advantage over us. And coming up with a solution to that, you know, would take a long time. It wasn't really until streaming became possible and, and until Amazon started making its own devices that, that served movies and TV shows and music, which starting with, um, the Fire Tablet, which actually gave us a big boost back in, I think that was 2010. Yeah, so I started in 2004, and it wasn't really until 2010 that the picture started to look promising. And was there one pivotal moment to which you would attribute the digital success that, that Amazon has enjoyed? Rather than attribute to a moment, what I actually would attribute to is the fact that we, had, we thought long-term, which is we didn't give up. And the reason we were not, we were able to not give up were, were number one, we were either breaking even, making a little money or, or losing, you know, not very much money in these businesses. And, and one of the ways that that happened was because I had a very small lean team. Like we, you know, we were, you know, again, Amazon today is not Amazon in those periods. We, we, we were lean. We were a retailer. We had thin margins. We, we didn't have the benefits of like a huge gross margin business like Google or Apple or Microsoft. Like, you don't make a lot of money on each transaction in the retail business. So you have to be frugal. So my teams were small. I didn't, uh, so I kept costs down. So we were able by, by, by keeping the costs down and, and having a credible service and, and, and having each year would have multiple different new innovations, new efforts to try to solve these hard problems. We were still making progress and had Jeff's support, but the investment the company was making into this was, was we weren't breaking the bank. So I would attribute it more to that, that that's, we, we were, we, we were able to succeed long-term, first of all, because we had that long-term thinking and that cost-conscious, you know, mentality. A lot of the other companies, they would get a whole lot of money in their pocket and they would blow all that money on big, splashy PR events, you know, hire a big band and have an event, you know, spend a, you know, tens of millions of dollars on, on marketing. We didn't do any of that. And so we outlasted all kinds of companies that flamed out because they did that. But the pivotal, actually, it was like one point in time when everything came together, which was 2011. For video, it was all in 2011. It was three things. We, we, had, we had acquired Love Film. We had launched our own device, the Fire Tablet. 
we had launched our first our subscription service with Prime Video. And oh, by the way, actually the fifth, the, the fourth thing that we were just starting to do was starting to think about in earnest spinning up Amazon Studios and developing our own content. So it was really, you know, at the end of the day, it went it went back to we finally had solutions to those fundamentals of the media business, which were distribution, you know, having our app on many, many devices, having our own devices, and then content, starting to have our own own subscription service, which created a unique content offering, and then starting to have specific movies and TV shows that would be exclusive to our service. So this may seem uh, to many, I, I suspect listening, may think, why on earth would you ask this question, Lee? But it strikes me that what was it that kept you at Amazon for 15 years? You know, I can make all sorts of assumptions around the scale of opportunity and the challenges and the, the, the complexity and the people and all the things that the magic source you go back to your first day that you describe this, the sense of wonder at the, the, the possibilities. But from your perspective, what was it that kept you engaged for that 15 year period? Well, the, one of the first things, of course, is the people. So I was working alongside incredibly talented managers and leaders. And, you know, whether that's Jeff Bezos or Jeff Wilkie or Jason Kyler, Steve Kessel, you know, so many people that I, I had the ability to work with day to day that were that are among, you know, the, the most talented business leaders of their generation. And I got to, you know, work with those people and an incredibly talented set of peers, incredibly talented, you know, team in my organization. So, so that was a big part. The other part, of course, is just that it was addicting to, I realized that like finding myself in a place where I had the opportunity to, to try to invent the future, to invent on behalf of customers, that was just incredibly cool. Like there are very few people that, that get that opportunity and that was addicting. There's no doubt that for me also, it was, uh, it became a source of just professional pride for me that, you know, I started this digital music business. I started this digital video business. And I was just not going, I needed to see it through to success. Like it was, it was a matter of pride. Like I did not want to give up or walk away from it when it was in a failed state. I wanted to, I only wanted to step away when it was clear that, you know, this thing was now up and to the right and this was going to work and succeed. What do you think you learned from the experience and the people indeed that you were working alongside? Well, I, I it's hard to encapsulate <laughs> that into one answer. I, that, so much. It was... The thing that most people don't realize until they would come to Amazon is that it's not as if we worked more hours a day than most people at, at who were, you know, in high energy, hardworking companies. It was that the amount of things that we, we sought to accomplish, the amount of information, the amount of balls in the air was just so much greater than in another company that, you know, my 15 years was, you know, in some ways it was more like, 30 or 45, like there was so much that happened in that period of time. It's also, by the way, of course, why, you know, I kept stopping after that because it was exhausting. It, it, it really was, it was, it was exhausting to me and I, I needed to break. I needed to step away. But well, a lot of what we, I learned, of course, we wrote in this book, working backwards about, about the extraordinary management science that Amazon has developed. But 90 plus percent of all of what I learned as a, as a profession, as a business professional, as a, as a business leader, you know, I learned in that time there. So it's hard for me. I don't know where to begin with my list. Does that sense of possibility and opportunity and the volume of 
of those those opportunities that you could potentially fulfil, distinct perhaps from other organisations, maybe as you describe it. Is that a culture that has been prevalent through your tenure? Is that something that evolved and grew and became more powerful, if you like, more more engulfing? Or, or had it was it there from day one? I guess had it been set from the top from the get go. Well, in many ways, it was there from day one. The sense of po- the sense of possibility and wonder was the greatest in the in those early days. But you know. I joined in the dot-com bubble, the dot-com boom of 1999, and then the bubble burst in 2001. So there was, you know, there were some degree castles in the sky going on there and people, you know, their, their sense of wonder exceeding, you know, reality. But what I came to appreciate is that, is that the, the, the sense, as you can see now in retrospect, the limitless opportunities, of course, were there, but what, you know, very, very few companies or people actually realize those without actually working on them for quite some time. And there will be massive ups and downs to them. I don't know. Look at Tesla, that company. I don't, I don't know. I don't know anyone works there, but I can tell, you know, they, they have changed the world, but they have had massive ups and downs. They've had many long, hard days at that company. I can tell and many days where they feel immense pride. And so the thing I would, you know, if I would pass on to learn, you know, most young people think, you know, they read just the press reports and they just think that, oh, I'll just land at this company and like it'll all be rosy and beautiful. But if you really want to succeed over the long term, you're going to work through some very difficult and challenging times. And that is really where your medal is tested. And that is really where you will grow the most. It's anyone can, you know, ride along in some company where all, all is rosy up and to the right and they can do no wrong. But can you now when things are bad, if you're at a company like Facebook, times are tough with all the public criticism. They need to figure out how to how to change that product to make it you know, a force for good in the world, not a force for, for evil. You know, the people who if there are people who will stick that out and figure that out, like that's really where their metal will be tested. The metal wasn't tested for the people that showed up on the thing it was just, you know, growing like a weed based on nothing that they did. They they were just right along for the ride. The the metal is tested when you hit the rocky spot. But make no mistake, I realized though that I was very lucky because although Amazon hit a pretty rough patch there in 2001 and we had to retrench and I spent, you know, a couple of years there frankly laying people off with the company, it was still, you know, over the long term proved to be a place of tremendous opportunity. Well, if, before we come on to the book, post Amazon, um, you've you know you've done some interesting things. You became entrepreneur in residence at uh, at Maven um, before joining online marketplace OfferUp. It raised one hundred and twenty million dollars, and um, I think recently um, combined with 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 LetGo, which uh, which looked like a fascinating journey. Chief operating officer there. What, 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 I, I sense for, consistent through this theme, this this uh, discussion. Sorry, a theme around small and growing and contributing and taking something on a journey was was that the appeal of of if you go back to uh, to offer up was that the appeal from your perspective yeah i mean i i sometimes wonder if i'm a a glutton for punishment because <laughs> here i was at amazon after 15 years i you know finally reached you know the top is sort of the wrong way to describe it but it finally you know established these businesses are you know they're going very well. These are, you know, billion dollar on the way to many, many billions of dollars, businesses, global businesses, um, you know, things look good, managing a very large global organization, you know, a job that, 
99 out of 100 people, you know, working in the entertainment business for the, for, you know, like, you know, you could, I could be spending my time on set at movies and TV shows, going to award, you know, going to the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys. So, but I gave all that up. Why did I do that? Um, sometimes I ask myself that question, but the honest answer is that I, by that time, the really hard problems that I described to you, which is how are you going to really formulate, uh, what's the, what's the customer proposition that's really going to work here? How are we really going to get good distribution of our application? How are we going to have devices that the company has to support them? Uh, how are we going to establish our own capabilities to make movies and TV shows? We had done that. Uh, the, the answers to all those questions were now clear. And the work ahead was largely then taking that successful recipe and, you know, stewarding it forward effectively, uh, rolling it out in many countries around the world and making sure that we made the right decisions about what new content to greenlight. But frankly, th- those, cha- those challenges were, were less interesting to me. And for better or worse, I, um, it, it sounds great every time. But actually going to, you know, Hollywood soirees and um, award shows, like it doesn't, it's not really me. I don't, I don't really, it seems, you know, it seems like if you're going to go talk to this famous person, that's, you know, and you can tell, and trust me, there, there are all kinds of, you know, <laughs> stories you tell your friends and family about this, that they'll find that fascinating. But when you're in the moment, you realize like, this is not, for me, that I said, you know, there's a certain person who thrives on this and this is their world and I, I, that's not me. And so I should turn the reins over to someone who, where, where that is their thing. So that's the right person for this job. And my job is more of like, I need to go back to finding my next thing where it's not really clear. Like, I, I guess I thrive on the lack of clarity. Like there's, you know, it's clear that there's this big opportunity and we're at point A and there's this this opportunity for this business or this business model to get to B, but it's not really clear exactly how we're going to get there. And somehow that wayfinding, that pathfinding is very interesting to me. So let's let's talk about the book. Was there a point at which you first, you know, that sense that for many, we all feel we might have a book in us somewhere. Was there, was there a point at which you thought, actually, I really do have a book in here. There is a, what was the, what was the story behind the inspiration behind working backwards? The moment that this happened, so I was 2017, three, a little over three years ago, and I was at a conference, early 2017, I was at a conference. I was part of um, spending some time as an executive or entrepreneur in residence with Mavron, a venture capital firm that is based in Seattle and San Francisco. And I was at their conference where their portfolio CEOs were there and some other prominent public company CEOs. The topic of Amazon came up in this breakout session. And one of the most prominent CEOs in the room, who I will not name, but a pretty notable, famous one said, Amazon, I don't understand how Amazon does it. Like, how have they been so successful in everything from cloud computing to digital media to e-commerce to third-party logistics? We're still trying to get our core business right. How have they done this? And I realized that I knew the answer to this question. And I'd come to appreciate, you know, because in my job, I, I spend a lot of time interacting with external companies, the motion picture studios, um, record companies, uh, flat panel manufacturers, Samsung, Sony, uh, Times Microsoft. I, I knew a thing or two about how other companies thought, acted and behaved. And I, you know, I came and I'd hired many, many people into the company and I had to spend all this time 
retraining them on like, okay, to some degree, forget everything you know, and let me let me teach you how you're going to do it here. And so I realized that Amazon had very different processes, very different forms of decision-making, and that many of these were completely counterintuitive to the way most businesses did them. And I also realized that many of these methods were the answer to, to this person's question. And, and I'd had conversations with my coworkers over time saying, you know, for example, we're working just on the fact that the way Amazon conducts meetings with documents and the way and the amount of time executives, senior executives spend in meetings, reviewing detailed documents, detailed plans from different groups, that the, the depth, the depth of knowledge and information that senior leaders have about what's going on in, in, in Amazon is, you know, multiples greater than in other companies. But for no other process, just in this simple process of how the company conducts meetings, which is actually one of the answers to this question, which is that if you actually, if you use your meeting time in a much more efficient way to, if you're a senior leader, what do you do with a meeting? It's to gather or transmit information and make decisions. And Amazon simply has come up with a way that is, I would argue, is eight times more efficient than how typical companies do this. And if that literally is true, then one senior executive could can oversee eight times uh, a business, eight times the complexity over a comparable executive at another company. And that is one simple answer to the question of like, how is that Amazon can be so effective in such businesses that are so diverse and have nothing to do with each other? And that's that's one of the answers. And so what do you hope to achieve with the book? Two things. I think that everyone thinks of Amazon, well, people people think of Amazon a lot, a lot of different ways. But one of the things, of course, people associate with Amazon is fabulously successful company, innovative companies developed, you know, innovative products from Echo to AWS to, you know, a fantastic e-commerce service. What no one, almost no one, though, associates with Amazon is this company is one of the most well-managed company and has developed its own management science that, frankly, in my opinion, should be studied and held up in the same esteem as Toyota's quality management, uh, the way that GE thought about running companies. The, um, it should be up there in the, the annals of the breakthroughs in management science that companies have developed. And people don't know about this. That, that again, this this the answer. The CEO that's asking this question, I think it's important for the business world to know this, and I think it's an important contribution. This may sound, you know, egotistical or overly high-minded, but I really think this is an important contribution to management science and to the next generation of business leaders. And by passing on these learnings, we will elevate entrepreneurship, business management. That. We will help those folks because we all stand on the shoulders of those that come before us. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that everyone should use exactly the way Amazon manages a business, but there is something to learn. If you, even if you don't incorporate any of it, there is something to learn by studying this that that maybe just will influence you a bit. Everything from that to wow, I think that's amazing, and I would like to be able to use those same processes. And so we wanted to make them accessible to people so that if they decided that this is how they want to run a company and hire people, run meetings, develop new products, manage their metrics, uh, organize the teams, think about 
think about principles, then we wanted to lay that out for them so that they could do it. And and you've co-authored with uh, with Carl, who was was chief of staff. Is that right? From uh, at Amazon for a spell, for a long spell. Yeah, Colin was there for twelve years, and he came from a different background. He was, you know, uh, um, from a more technical engineering background, and most notable, most notably, his most notable role was two years as Jeff's chief of staff, otherwise known as the Shadow, Jeff Shadow, and he was the second person to hold this role. The first person was Andy Jassy, who's going to be the second CEO ever of Amazon. And the amazing thing about, one of the amazing things is that this narrow window of time of 2003 to 2006 is kind of this renaissance period for the company. Or in that window of time, new businesses that have driven all of the growth, I mean, all of the growth of the company were either launched or conceived of in that window of time. And that includes Amazon Prime, the digital media business, which includes the devices and the services that I ran, AWS, and then uh, Fulfillment by Amazon. They were all either launched or conceived of or started in that window of time. And, oh, by the way, the company's um, leadership principles, as well as four of the five major processes that the company relies on to to, to operate and scale effectively and, and to develop, to be an invention machine, that Jeff calls it, they were all developed in that same window of time too. So Colin and I, between, with our respective roles, we had a front row seat to these twin developments that are in the, both in their own right are remarkable. And, and so for those that are listening, where can they buy? Where can they buy it? Where should they go? Where should they find you? <laughs> Wherever books are sold, yep. uh, online and your favorite uh, uh, high street shop or neighborhood sh- bookstore. Uh, is where to go get our book, Working Backwards. And it, it's Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. Is that That's the uh, the working title. That's it. Fantastic. Yes. Well, or be- you can also visit um, www.workingbackwards.com uh, to learn more about us. Fantastic. Bill, it's been a real pleasure to... I have so many questions. I appreciate your time this time. I, had so, I have so many more questions. My mind is a whirl. But um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I've really enjoyed the experience. Fascinating insight. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on my copy of the book. Uh, and I know that there will be many that will be looking to do the same. Um, my thanks for your time today and uh, all the very best wishes to you for the future. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for your interest in your time. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks a lot, Bill. Cheers. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.